I was on spring break last week. I mean, not me specifically. I don't get a spring break. When you go to the beach, there's a line of stores down there called uh, Alvin's Island. This is where you can get your airbrush t-shirts or boogie boards, flip-flops, all the essentials. Also, you can get alligator heads. Is that like some kind of like candy or a drink? No. Well, it could be. I don't know. But these are literal alligator heads. What? (laughs) In all sizes. I assume they're real. I don't know. It seems like an odd thing to mass produce. (laughs) Do you use them as what? Like paperweights? I don't know what you would actually use it for. It's just decor, I guess. It's Florida decor. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 216 of Touchpoint. I'm Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed. Welcome back from vacation. Thanks. Hope I remember how to do this. I haven't done this in a week. It's like riding a bicycle, though, Reed, except in this case, you have a microphone. Very similar. Anyway, going to be a good show today. Uh, Neat topic, timely topic, Mm -hmm. uh, as we are certainly at the one-year anniversary of all things COVID. So more to come on that. But before we get to that, touchpoint.health is the website. I want to get a quick plug in there. Head over there, check it out. There's a ton of shows. We've actually got a new one coming out that I hope to be able to talk about in the next week or two. So more to come there. But go see what's on, on the site. Check out the show host, the topics, all the great content. And click through and subscribe wherever you happen to uh, be listening or streaming. Rate, review, subscribe. Number one way people can uh, continue to find out about us. And it keeps us plugging away and doing this thing. And uh, let the sponsors know that we sent you. If you hear them on the shows, uh, that certainly is a big help as well. While you're at the website, however, sign up for the TPS report. It's a weekly email. comes out every Monday morning. has five news stories in it to get your week off to a great start. So let's pause for a second while you go sign up to be a TPS report subscriber. And we'll be right back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is, and Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews, and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand, they demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you.
You mentioned that we are now have crossed the one year anniversary of us officially in the United States, this being a pandemic. It really made us reflect on what is the state of our industry and how are we going to recover as an industry? As many people know, listening in, I started working in a hospital system. You work with hospital systems all the time. Uh, we're we're struggling. There's a lot of challenges that the pandemic has done. We've done a lot of great things, but we're also struggling as an industry. Yeah. And I think it varies a little bit, certainly across the country. I mean, if you're a sole community provider, I'm sure, you know, volume recapture is paramount right now. If you're part of a larger health system, you probably have a little bit of a buffer or a little more runway maybe, but I think we'll continue to see more and the more the need to you know try to get back to quote unquote normal uh, sooner than later. In today's episode, we're going to dive into a couple of these themes that we're finding as we look at how do we rebound. I think there's a, a myriad of challenges that are being faced, but we're going to try to address and touch on them today. Price Waterhouse Coopers they just recently released a report that's entitled "The Top Health Industry Issues of 2021." And how will a shocked system emerge stronger? That's certainly where we're at, a shocked system, aren't we? Yeah, I think so. Man, I was going to say unprecedented times. <laughs> I did just say unprecedented times. But yes, it, it is, it's a, uh, a shocked system, to say the least. Um, they talk about that healthcare organizations, probably more specifically, they say their frontline clinical workforce have really been the ones that have absorbed the brunt of the pandemic, especially the emotional toll that it's taken. And specifically, they call out, which is kind of interesting. I, you know this happened, but but I don't know if you really thought about it in this way. People are coming in, not allowed to have visitors. So here, here are these healthcare workers having to be that person and kind of be the front line and, and bear the brunt of all that. Those patients that maybe have not contracted COVID, a lot of them are delaying their care. Now we're starting to see this toll of those patients that are coming in much sicker because they haven't come in through normal checkups, visits, etc. And then on top of that, there is this looming mental health crisis. 32% of U.S. consumers surveyed said they had experienced anxiety or depression as a result of the pandemic. They really kind of get to the crux of this, which is that uh, these healthcare organizations need a resilient infrastructure and ultimately supply chains that are able to absorb future shocks. I think we would be remiss if we assumed we wouldn't have another one. I don't know if it'd be COVID again necessarily, but something else will happen in the future. So how do we grow and become more resilient because of it? Some of the trends that they've found from the surveys and the research that PricewaterhouseCoopers has done, the first trend that came out is one that we've talked about quite a bit on the show before, virtual health as a way to reshape healthcare delivery. They say here that for millions of Americans and their healthcare providers, the pandemic really was the first time they actually used telehealth. Not only the patients, but the healthcare providers using telehealth, obviously with uneven results. For sure. I mean, you know, you're used to doing a certain thing a certain way for so long. And just like patients didn't have to do virtual care, most providers didn't have to provide it or allow that to be an option necessarily, right? Like you kind of go on business as normal and just kind of click on down the path. Well, now they're having to reshape that. You know, past that, it talks in here about, you know, the payers aren't really sure how to reimburse and in some cases even provide virtual care. 
they don't really know where they plug in the pharmaceutical, the life sciences companies, you know, where do they go? Literally in the process, something that's got to get figured out sooner than later, certainly, especially the reimbursement piece. A part of that as well is that providers have to continue to improve their experience, that patient experience, but also very importantly, not create new health disparities because of the lack of technology access. Telehealth served a certain population, but not all populations were able to take advantage of that. That's a really interesting one. We actually had an article in a recent TPS report about is internet access basically, you know, going to foul us up here? You know, because if you don't have the technology, then you're creating another inequity system. A couple of insights here. First off, 95%, they say, of large U.S. employers are covering telehealth. You know, that's up from 56% in 2016. So that's, that's a positive. But they will have to really hone in on, you know, how this all works within the current healthcare system. So it's fine to cover it, I guess. But like if your doctor's not providing it, I'm not sure what good that does. The major insights that PricewaterhouseCoopers found is that specialties such as mental health will have to find a stronger footing in virtual visits because that's ever present. And we have to keep paying attention to both revenue and customer experience when it comes to virtual health, particularly when you talk about health disparities. The second trend they call in here is that clinical trials are changing. They're actually changing for the good. Uh, So they say in the face of a pandemic that have forced nearly everyone from patients, clinical trial coordinators to stay home, at least temporarily stay home, pharmaceutical and life sciences companies have been asking how much can be done remotely. I think we've all been asking how much can be done remotely, right? A lot. So we do clinical trials via Teams now. To a certain extent, right? Sort of, right? Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I think that they're looking at rethinking how they do clinical trials to minimize those inpatient visits. Uh, How do you conduct those trials with fewer interactions? And maybe you start to overlay to virtual check-ins. You also see this increased appetite for change across the industry as sponsors, contract research organizations, and patients see benefits from sort of this decentralized model of not only work, but also of care. Quite honestly, I kid about the Teams thing, but I think that and like, you know, the aforementioned mental health and some of those may actually flourish in the virtual environment for various reasons, certainly. But I, I think that that is very interesting. It decreases the the burden, but also I think about like mental health, for example, there's a stigma attached to that in a lot of cases. And so if you're able to do that virtually, at least initially, like in your own kind of private world in the privacy of your home or something like that, it may uh, allow people to get some help. Moreover, payers and providers have a lot of data now about their members and and populations they serve. So that could help lead to different ways that we look at clinical trials. The pharmaceutical and life science companies are developing new protocols to serve a, a greater diversity. Again, health equity kind of creeps into this. It not only is looking at reducing the number of trips they have to make to the hospital or the physician's office, but also trying to drive maybe specific types of clinical trials for certain audiences. And they say almost all, almost all, 98% specifically, pharmaceutical and life science executives that they surveyed said that they expected a digital investment in clinical trials to increase in the next year. So again, I, not, not a huge shocker, certainly, but 98%, that's like 100%, right. 98% of the time. 
Might as well round it up, right? Yeah. Okay, so a third trend that they're seeing here is related to the clinician experience. And I think that's an important one for us to consider. They say that digital relationships can help improve that overall experience that the physician or the healthcare provider may have. We've talked about this, Reed, even prior to the pandemic, about the heavier workloads and putting more administrative tasks on on the physician or the provider, particularly in the realm of like the EHR and those those electronic health record systems. I got to log into the portal. Exactly. They talk about the fact that digital technology, if if done correctly, could be somewhat of an antidote to all these pain points that physicians encounter. Hopefully, if that's done, then that would obviously lead to you know more efficiency. It would up physician satisfaction, obviously make happier patients and more attractive for uh, like patient referrals and things like that. And we're investing in more tools that are kind of more open APIs. And I'm thinking too about open notes and and mm-hmm. you know the, the Cures Act and things like that. These are things where we're going to start to have more of these tools that are going to be available to us. But even more so, the clinical team at, at PwC says they expect more investment by payers into process automation around things such as provider contracting, enhanced portals where providers could see what's happening to different claims, straight through processing, and automating it, making that shift from automation from the from the back office of finance and human resources to the actual doctor's office. You hate to be the naysayer or the glass half empty kind of thing, or y'all yeah, believe it when I see it, but I hope they can get there sooner than later with a lot of these pieces, right? It's dependent upon, we really need to make that clinician experience that much better. Think about us also as we're trying to, as healthcare marketing professionals, we also need to be able to reach out and target our communications with our physicians better. All of this world of new digitized data, if we align it to improving that clinical experience, that really shows some, some value. They did a study here. It says nearly all respondents to the survey 94% 94% of provider ex- executives, 92% of life science executives, and 91% of health plan executives said improving the clinical experience is a priority for their organizations as they go into 2021. The takeaways here, healthcare organizations can achieve efficiency with better digital relationships. Obviously, the devil's in the details there. Uh, and then, you know, applying the right digital tools for clinicians can be an opportunity for growth even. So as we think about like volume recapture and things like that, if you've got the frictionless system, there's a good chance that you may just pick up some, pick up some uh, volume by proxy. Well, let's do this, Reed. Let's take a break here. And then we'll come back. We'll kind of round out some of the other trends that they're seeing and talk a little bit about digital health literacy as a big part of this before we go to our interview. We'll do that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. 
let's round out. We got we have uh, three more trends to touch on, and then we'll get into some health literacy pieces here. But trend number four, again, the PwC uh, article is uh, healthcare forecasting for an uncertain 2021. A health industry will need a forecasting system that provides a lens for the uncertainty ahead. Well, is that Project Crystal Ball, or how do we? Project Magic Eight Ball. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Try again later. <laughs> So better sightlines obviously can help companies prepare and shift. And certainly as we see the like things like insurance markets, the economy, utilization, consumer behavior, any sort of like infectious diseases that may be coming, uh, like the uh, aforementioned pandemic. Yeah, that would be great. Let's get one of those. What they're really referring to is, you know, in the past, we had this model of where we're looking at the past 30 days of claims or historical behavior trends to determine what's happening. They're saying here now, real-time insights is the way of the future. And that's the way to create the healthcare industry's forecasting system. Much like Google does, where Google could actually predict where things are happening based on what people are searching for, that real-time insights is going to be very important particularly when you look at the pandemic and how it's impacting different regions in the country in different ways. But it also speaks to a little bit more complexity in those local markets too. And they even say 74% of health executives said that their organization would invest more in predictive modeling in 2021. Well, I would, yeah, I would think so. I mean, that and digital are the two, I guess, focal points from a budgetary perspective. So, you know, the takeaway here for trend four, got to be a little more dynamic in what we're doing from a strategic planning standpoint. What analytics do we have? What do we need? You know, how do we model and look ahead a little more effectively? Look at some sort of regional forecasting model. Obviously, there's going to require some leadership tie-in there. They say population-wide simulations uh, can help healthcare leaders consider how interventions could maximize the impact of their investments. So beta testing, if you will. Just imagine the complexity of what the local municipality partnerships are going to have to look like in terms of sharing data. It's going to be a whole new world. Pivoting now to the fifth trend that we see here that 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 they found in their survey, they say that health portfolios are reshaped for growth. The shock of the pandemic has highlighted the need for many organizations to diversify their capabilities and revenue streams to be more resilient, readying for a variety of things. It could be, you know, an increased focus on pricing and price transparency. It could be various different legislative or even court decisions that are coming down. Organizations that are more healthier in the healthcare landscape have to be able to diversify what they're doing to kind of weather the recovery, so to speak diversification in your portfolio, if you will. We will see in 2021, they say, uh, an increased investment in and by healthcare companies in short gaps exposed by the pandemic. I think we'll see a ton of PE money coming in. Obviously, they're going to be looking for opportunities because I think this is exposed to a lot of opportunity. And, you know, quite honestly, it's like that's pretty good backing for those that are doing good work to have more runway and be able to innovate and iterate quicker, I would assume. Rock Health, and we've had some people on from them before on our show. They're VC, right, that are looking at where the investments are. And they regularly put out pulses on what the marketplace is like. And they are saying that there is a huge 
investment in the digital health space. And this study that PricewaterhouseCoopers did supports that. They say that nearly 50% of all payer executives surveyed said their organization is investing in digital product support and educational tools such as mobile apps to improve member experiences. So everybody from payers to providers to startups, health IT companies, this is now going to be the new explosive area in healthcare because it has so much impact for us in the future. Quickly, the last trend, trend number six, and now we're getting into the supply chain. So how do we build a resilient and responsive supply chain uh, built kind of for the long term? They say from managing the cost and tax implications of onshoring manufacturing to develop a network approach of redundancy, uh, the healthcare industry in 2021 will start to reconstruct the supply chain to function and, and have more flexibility as it does in the automotive and tech industries, for example. So all of that lean and Six Sigma stuff that we've been doing in the hollowed halls of uh, healthcare are going to play into how we do the supply chain now. I think it makes total sense. Being slightly sarcastic, but really, you know, they go on to say that wherever possible, the health system is expected to begin to triangulate supply chain risks, knowing as much as possible about their suppliers maybe even establishing new ways to secure supply chain. Particularly, you know, we think about the early stages of the pandemic when we were having trouble getting PPE in. This really speaks to this fact here. We can no longer have just enough inventory. We now have to have a very diverse supply chain. And again, 94% of those life science executives and 86% of the provider executives I said that improving their supply chain was a big priority uh, for 2021. So that obviously is is a big deal as you look to take care of your frontline staff, patients. A few insights here. Obviously, there is rippling cost of supply chain disruptions, as they say, and uh, that, that we should take a cue from automakers and apply a dual sourcing strategy to add redundancy without disrupting established networks. Oh, that sounds really, really interesting if you're into supply chain. Dual sourcing strategy. I like it. Something you could say at a party, right? Oh, I'm in charge of our health system's dual sourcing strategy. I think my laptop has a dual sourcing strategy. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the last one I bought. Well, Reed, before we go to our interview, let's end on another topic that we, while we alluded to above, right, these trends are going to impact our industry. That is, again, virtual health as being a way to reshape delivery, clinical trials are, are being changed, improving the clinician experience through digital, forecasting even into supply chain and our portfolio diversity. One thing that we need to really address is health literacy. When we look at the pandemic, we know the pandemic has had an equity in our communities that we serve. So now let's turn our attentions to that. And we do that through an article that we found on Healthcare IT News. Dr. Rodriguez and Dr. Bates, that are both from the Brigham and Women's Hospital, outlined five main facets to address when considering digital health equity. And those are tech access, tech literacy, implementation, payment, and standard of care. So you can see that you know literacy is uh, a big piece of that. Well, let's first start with access. Dr. Bates said that there have been issues with who is able to use virtual health. We could see in the COVID vaccine registration systems, which are very much digital in nature. And I know we, a couple weeks ago in our TPS 
email and also the TBS podcast, we talked about that many of those online appointment scheduling forms are not accessible to people that have vision impairment. But in this particular case, he's he's even going so far as to say that many patients do not have digital access. They can't get the vaccine because they don't have access to a computer and sit on that computer for hours on end trying to get an appointment. Man, I wish I didn't have a computer. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. But that is obviously a huge void. And some people that even have computers don't have great access or if they have smartphone or whatever still can't can't do it. And, and they say in here, technology access includes both broadband and device access. At least 21 million people, they report, in the United States lack broadband access. And federal programs have been unsuccessful, at least to this point, in trying to fill those voids. This is where they kind of talk about now digital health literacy as being a social determinant of health. Not a new idea for us, right? We've talked about this before. But Rodriguez advised providers and vendors to develop linguistically and culturally tailored digital health tools to engage these populations. And he even brought up an example that 22% of surveyed diabetes apps have user interfaces that are available in Spanish even though Latinx populations are more likely than the general population to get diabetes. These very simple things are kind of like a a reflection of the importance of health, literacy, and access. They say payment two is a major driver for uh, digital health equity. So in terms of uh, maintaining payment parity across all the modalities is really important. Payers, they say, failing to reimburse for telephone visits as opposed to video visits creates a perfect setup for disparities, he says. And, and unfortunately, that's kind of the reality of the situation. They both advise some ways that you could bring equity to your digital health tools. Uh, of course, this is very high level. They didn't get into specific details, but they say here, here are the four, they say, invest in patient portals and apps that address the needs of underserved populations and ensure that they have the linguistics in there, the languages to, so that people can access them. Also, they talk about that uh, tracking digital health access and usage across uh, sociodemographics is uh, a place to get started. Very important. In fact, in the patient vaccine outreach that I'm doing, we're noticing that a certain language is really responding well to making their appointments online, whereas other languages completely are not They also say here, focus on patient training in the deployment of new technologies, making sure that you're addressing those literacy levels. Whenever you put out a new widget or a new tool, make sure that people know how to use it. That would be key, you would think. Finally, the fourth thing, uh, develop workflows that allow clinical teams to engage with diverse patients across digital health platforms. If we could address all of the things we just mentioned, I think we're going to make sure that our industry has a successful rebound from the pandemic. But the problem is, is that every each and every one of these that we mentioned, Reed, is a very, very challenging problem to face. Think about you know how you're creating access points in your marketing and advertising. You know where are you driving people? What are you asking them to do? You know, are you taking into account? Uh, the diverse populations or, you know, those gaps in your market that maybe are underserved. Um, I think it's just an interesting way to kind of think about, you know, how we play into this occasion at times. With that, we're going to turn to an interview that I had with someone that has been on the show before, Sam Lipolis. She and I sat down to talk about the state of telemedicine because that's going through some significant changes. But she also describes 
what she calls the worst law about telemedicine. It was a really interesting conversation. So we'll go to that interview right after this break, and then we'll be back to close out the show. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts segment of the podcast. And today I am delighted to have someone back on to the show, someone that I just I spoke to, I don't know, maybe it's been about a half a year now, and that's Sam Lipless. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. I'm so excited to be back and chatting with you today. I'm excited that you're here too, because the last interview we had was very informative, and I'm looking forward to you sharing more of your insights in today's uh, conversation. But before we jump in, there may be some people that did not hear your last interview and may not know about you. Would you mind sharing a brief background on yourself and what you do? Absolutely. So Sam Lipolis and I've been in the space of telehealth for 11 years, 10 of them at large health systems, implementing everything from remote patient monitoring to direct consumer, inpatient, outpatient. Now I'm a consultant and help organizations with their telemedicine programs, training large groups, and then also working with startups and doing advising and consulting as they start to roll out their telemedicine products. Well, it was a great time for you to do that because certainly 2020 was known as the year of telemedicine or the golden age of telemedicine. Absolutely. I've been joking, you know, being in the space for 11 years, the first 10, no one really knew what I did. And now in the last year, people are like, oh, I get that. So it's been a real change. And it's a little sad that we needed a pandemic to bring us almost a decade, you know, into the future, but at least, at least some good can come of it. Last year, a lot of people were talking about telemedicine as if it was a new thing. And we know it hasn't been a new thing. When you think about like product maturity in the marketplace, I think it's safe to say that maybe 2020 was like the hype cycle of telemedicine. Suddenly everybody was kind of dragged into it because of the pandemic. And now I would say that as we're coming, we're we're not out of the pandemic yet, but as we're we're kind of moving into first full year of the pandemic, the first full year since COVID was here, maybe the maturity cycle is starting to get out of the hype cycle and it's becoming more regular within the health system. Is that a fair assessment? I would say that it's definitely, yeah, it's out of the hype cycle. It's more mainstream. But what I'm seeing with my clients a lot is that, Everybody had to turn on telemedicine right away, right? Oh, we have to close. We have to have this way to treat patients. And so they turned on telehealth, which could have been anything from video, email, telephone. Really, the tools they're using are pretty broad. But what we are finding is, especially if you look at the video space, the providers weren't really trained. And it was it was no fault of anyone. It was just, we need to turn this on overnight. And so we're seeing some things like providers, maybe not as comfortable with the tech. Patient education may not have been that great with the technology either. And then the actual workflows. So you might've seen some reports where everyone's saying, hey, when the pandemic started, we had like 80% of visits were telehealth. And now it's dropped to 20%. Does this mean telehealth? is not relevant. And I actually look at it a very different way. I look at it as when you all had to close the practice and go home, implementing telemedicine was a little bit easier, right? That's why you had 80% because you weren't in the practice. Well, as all the practices are reopening, we all go back to how we know how to do things. And if we didn't design workflows to allow us to 
integrate telehealth as a hybrid model, partially telehealth, partially in person, then what happens, you open back the practice and you just go back to business as usual. So I don't actually think this drop in telemedicine is about efficacy. I think it's much more related to workflows and business as usual. It's probably fair to say that we're never going to actually get back to business as usual. If anything, we will start to now see a hybrid approach to our care, at least I'm now speaking on behalf of the patient. And I know that myself, right? Over the last year, I have had a kind of a smattering of both telehealth and in-person visits for procedures or treatments and those sorts of things. Moving forward, that's kind of the workflow that the providers have to face now. Certainly in our traditional health systems, it'll be a hybrid model. And that's where it's important that organizations, health systems really now step back and reflect on how do I make sure this is a hybrid model? How do I have a workflow that works for my clinicians? Because the patient side has been in a lot of ways, a little more sorted out, but how do we do it? How do we really make sure it's working for the providers and how do we really regroup and train them and have them feel really comfortable with it? So Absolutely, in the traditional health system, it'll be a hybrid model. But the other thing we've seen a big rise of is what they're calling virtual first. And that is organizations that are 100% virtual, whether it's birth control for women or specialty GI only virtual first that addresses IBS or diabetic only virtual first. So I do think we're seeing now this interesting rise of these verticals that is really saying we have a virtual first approach. And then they oftentimes will have partnerships with labs or procedural locations if that's what you need for the further the in-person care. That really is fascinating that this virtual first model is the first time I heard that. That's kind of an, an interesting approach to it, but it completely makes sense. And it also leads to this sort of ongoing fragmentation of the care model if you're not being mindful of that, if you're not a provider thinking about like now there, there's many ways that people can enter their care. I struggle a little with that because I love the concept of virtual first. Obviously, I'm a telemedicine person, you know, over a decade. I also think we can end up with some fragmentation. I also have concerns around the health disparity aspect of it because oftentimes the virtual first Their market is really employer-based or self-funded based or insurance-based. And so what that makes me think is, well, what about the people on, you know, Medicaid? What about the high deductible insurance plans that might not have access to these really great services that could come directly into their home? And, you know, that's just an equity mindset that I look at it from that makes me a, a little concerned. I see why we why people are doing it from a business aspect, but there can be this further fragmentation and then further disparity. Well, I've also noticed that there are a lot of the more traditional retail big box companies, Walmart, Amazon, CVS, that are actually getting aggressively into this space too. And that makes me wonder, because of their sort of consumer-centric mindset, does that sort of tip the scales in the in the favor of them? Because, you know, quite frankly, if I hear that Amazon has a a telemedicine offering, I'm used to kind of interacting with them. Do you think that that's going to shift the marketplace too? Well, this is a good question. And something I've been talking about with different colleagues lately is it's this interesting fine line between 
tech companies or retailers being in this space versus the legacy hospitals and health systems. So I don't know if we'll see almost the the front door, the low level things happening more in these retail spaces or or the Amazons and that you end up with the hospitals really for the high acuity. But it also makes me think like hospitals are going to do everything possible for that not to happen. So I don't know the answer. I think maybe five years to really watch what it plays out. But we have have talked about that. I don't think the Amazons and the Googles will really be able to become the true centers of healthcare. Because if you think about it, they're a software as a service business, right? They're not these brick and mortar procedural type of businesses. So I think they may bring more the tech, the data to be able to evaluate large streams of data, but them actually becoming true healthcare providers. Let's watch and see. But I think that's a little harder nut to crack than people realize. That's true. However, you know, you think about like Walmart Health and all their retail locations and CVS, there is a certain part that they can actually manage and take care of, but then again, turn into feeders for more of the specialty care. This is certainly something that is something for us to be mindful about. I want to get back to something you you referred to earlier on about kind of shifting the mindset of that healthcare provider, the physician, right? The people that are actually delivering care through these platforms. In our first interview, we talked a little bit about that, that that's one of the big challenges. How does a provider now show up in a telehealth space? What are you seeing with providers? Are Is it still very difficult for them to embrace this medium? I think we still have some that are like, hey, I'm totally good with this and others that are not. What I'm seeing is starting to happen is there's definitely a recognition of most providers don't want to be full-time telehealth, whether it's a screen of you know video or just emailing people. There's a different emotional drain level. And so if someone's on a screen or only remote all the time, they're not satisfied in their job. So we're definitely seeing this, okay, what's a hybrid model and how do I get some in-person and how do I do some tele? That's one component. The other component we're really talking to the providers about and seeing over and over again is what is the training for this? How am I trained not only to get on video or how am I trained to do a physical exam within my discipline? How do I evaluate eyeballs? How do I evaluate this arm? Like they're definitely saying like, look, I see what I can do but I'm uncomfortable in certain areas because I haven't been trained in it. And I think that's a really big piece. And we're starting to see some of the national associations determine, are they going to be the ones who lay out the guidelines? So is American cardiology, are they going to be the ones to say, this is what a cardiology virtual visit is, or this is what it is for this particular disease state. So there's a lot of conversation from the providers for that because they want to make sure if they're going to, or when they do it, that they're doing a great clinical care while they do the telemedicine and each tool, video, email, text, remote patient monitoring will have a different criteria of what great clinical care is. That's what led to the slow adoption prior to the pandemic. And now we're kind of picking up the pieces after, you know, after now that we've been forced to use them, how do we kind of address that? But I think it's a very noble pursuit for us to start to set some guidelines and and protocols 
again, I, you know, I myself looking at my personal experience, I've had two telehealth visits in the last, you know, six months and vastly different experiences entirely. And it was entirely dependent upon the person on the other side of the screen. A hundred percent. And so like, one, yeah, which is like, whoa, we got to help consistency, right? Because say you have your first experience is positive and your second one is, meh, you know, you might be like, hmm, I wonder how this is going. And I can give an example of a client that I've been working with. They are a home visit program for first-time low-income moms. So it's a nurse home visit program. Moms are between pregnancy and kiddo up to three years old. So when the pandemic hit, obviously they needed to stop going into patients, into clients' homes. That wasn't safe. And they came to me about, about six months in. So what's interesting is it doesn't matter how long your clinicians have been, quote unquote, doing telehealth. If they're not comfortable, they'll just keep doing it and they may not tell you. So these nurses, we started doing really different kinds of trainings, camera confidence. How do you get on the camera? How do you actually recruit your clients into being able to visualize them, right? Because they were doing mostly telephone, which if you think about serving a client who you before sat on their couch in their living room with them to only interacting with them on the telephone, that's a huge disparity in what you're able to do. And so we work through basic things, getting on camera, how tech support, things like that. But then I asked them, what do you do when you're in the home with your client. Well, we teach them how to read with their baby. We might support them in uh, breastfeeding. We might do a, we'll, we'll walk around their house and see where they're going to place the crib so that they have a safe environment. And I said, well, how are you doing all that now? And they're like, mm, well, we're not because we can't see anything. And so we literally practice these things. And I act like the mom and I have a fake baby and we practice, how would you read with a baby? How would we look around the house? And then we role play that back to all the nurses. And it's incredible because they're like, oh my gosh, now I can see how that's possible. And so we have to really, it's just like how we train clinicians. We train them with role-playing. We train them with demo in the regular in-person world. And we have to do that when we're using these other modalities because you can't expect people just to know how to do this on their own. We have to teach them and show them. And for the nurses, it's incredible. Like one nurse comment is like, oh my God, I have my workflow back and I feel like I'm actually connected with my clients. And for me, that's all you need because it's, wow, we just made them feel like clinicians again. That's a really great uh, story. I often wonder, and you can even see this when you do like Zoom calls, right, with just colleagues or even your friends. There are some people that are very aware that they're in a new medium and others that are not. Those people that actually are aware and actually able to use those mediums in a more effective way are, are the ones where you they tend to be more engaging. And, and ultimately, that's what it's all about. It's, virtual care is only as good as the engagement that you have with your patient or else the, the message will get lost regardless of how well you deliver the news. What we have to remember is clinicians go into healthcare to be healers. They go into this for their heart. They don't go into it for other reasons. And if we're at a distance, right, if we're virtual and they don't feel connected from their heart to their patients, then they're not having that healing feeling. So our obligation as these um, promoters of virtual care and do things at a distance is always remembering clinicians are healers. They're heart-centered. And we have to help them 
see the technology as a way to still be able to connect in that heart-centered way. Well, so I know that there's another part of the whole industry in general that kind of is impacting telehealth. And I wanted to uh, turn some of our attention to that, which is the regulatory aspects of this. Because, you know, quite frankly, the widespread adoption of telehealth was enabled by the fact that we allowed an environment regulatory-wise to expand telehealth dramatically what are some of the shifts that you're seeing there on the legislative side? I think our positives are the the reimbursement waivers and the things that we've seen. We're all waiting patiently to see if those reimbursement waivers become permanent long-term. We have seen the beginning of the Biden administration that they did send a letter to the governors, HHS sent a letter to the governors saying that most likely the public health emergency would stay enacted through all of 2021. So I think all of our hopes are if we have two years of reimbursement, it may be very difficult for Medicare to then, you know, peel that away from people. But one particular policy that's seems to have snuck in in December 2020 that luckily Foley and Lardner is a is a law group that really is deep in telemedicine and puts out great content and updates us on what's going on is this very strange part of an appropriations act actually has one sentence in there directly related to mental health that we are all joking is this the worst telehealth law of 2020 and what it says is this one sentence is talking about telemental health and states that you cannot get paid by Medicare for telemental health unless you have seen the patient in person first and then see them in person every six months. And this is an really, it's quite crazy. And we're all very surprised. We don't understand where this came from. Nowhere in any other Medicare, even if we look at Medicare's telehealth policy and video visits, does it ever say you have to have an in-person visit? It's not there. And then the other strange thing about this, the Support Act, which was very specific around substance abuse disorders, there was an allowance if you had substance abuse disorder, plus any other behavioral health diagnosis codes, you could have telehealth from your home. And again, that particular law, which came in, I think it's a 2019 law, didn't have any requirements about in-person. So this new law has basically put a barrier in place that had never existed I think everyone's confused. We're not sure why it's in there, but it definitely has ramifications of getting paid by Medicare for telemental health. And especially, I mean, the efficacy of telemental health is incredibly high to all of a sudden put a barrier that you have to be seen in person within six months of that visit. And then every six months after just really doesn't make any sense. I don't know if we're going to try to figure out how to get that one sentence out, but it's certainly a big surprise and really makes no sense of all the other things that have been passed. Yeah, you said the efficacy of virtual uh, behavioral health treatment through virtual platforms is very effective. Uh, So I would assume that this isn't based on any kind of clinical research at all then. Oh, gosh, no. Because actually, if you look back at telemental health, we've had strong telemental health data for about a decade because the VA and Department of Defense have been high utilizers of telebehavioral health for a long time. So actually, we've got data going back a decade of efficacy. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder, like, 
you know, sometimes policymakers and lobbyists don't always know what they're putting in here. And so sometimes I think maybe someone thought it was a great idea. And apparently the document, I don't, I can't remember what they said. This is like a thousands and thousands and thousands of page document that actually really has nothing to do with telemedicine at all. Oh yeah. It's a 5,593 page document that has the value of $2.3 trillion. And it just happens to be this one sentence basically takes us back in time on telemental health. Now that it's been brought to light, is there any kind of momentum? Is there any kind of interest in maybe potentially over, you know, rewriting that sentence? Yeah, I think now that, you know, I think what's also interesting is, you know, this law group, it took them a couple months to find it. So they must have been, again, scanning all the newest policy, find keyword telehealth, see what these sentences say. So they brought it to light. And luckily, this group sits with American Telemedicine Association. And so now all of us telehealth stakeholders are saying like, hey, we've got a problem here. Does anyone realize this exists? So I think it just came to light in the last probably two weeks. And I think we'll see big push, we just got to hope that people listen and are going to be willing to strike out, strike out the sentence. Well, so clearly telemedicine is kind of getting past that hype cycle and it's getting more, you know, mainstream, so to speak. And there are a lot of implications like we talked about today in the the last few minutes. But, you know, as we look forward, Sam, how do you think it's going to play out? Like if we were talking another six months from now, what would, what would we be saying? What are, do you think some of the advancements will be? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think six months from now, I think we'll fall in that level, probably about 30%, 30 to 35% will be very consistent in telehealth. Six months from now, I think we'll also have a better idea where the new administration and then all their leadership are willing to move the threshold in terms of payment parity. And then an area we're just seeing a really big rise in, and this is because we've had payment for it for about three years, is remote patient monitoring. So we'll see more and more ways that people are using remote patient monitoring to address not only chronic disease, but rising risk. Yeah, six months from now, I think we're still going to be finding our way But again, because we're still in a social distancing, you know, we won't all be vaccinated in six months. And so this time will let us keep playing in this telehealth space to be able to have more clarity 12 months from now. It certainly shows you that telemedicine is not a fad. It's not something that's going to go away. It's something that's here to stay. And our world is going to be like everything else, a hybrid of digital and offline experiences. That's just what our future is. And if you think about too, about, you know, age at home, you know, the movement toward, you know, some of that long-term care now for the, for our elderly population, this certainly seems like the right time for all of this. So what an exciting uh, time for you to be in this space, Sam. Yeah. I mean, I think it's amazing. I think we have so many opportunities and as we continue continue to grow this. And, you know, I just encourage listeners and everyone out there that let's make sure we we also take the time to look at the workflows that we created in an emergency and really take the time to say, is this the best path for our clinicians and our patients? But I want us to be really cognizant of how our clinicians can feel that this is 
easy within their workflow and that we can make it a part of their workflow so it doesn't feel like a burden now that they're back in clinic. And that we also take the time to really train them and help them understand how do you get on a camera? How do you connect? How do we make sure you can do clinical interventions? How do we practice that, demo it, and do it? I think those are super important. And if we don't kind of back up and spend that time doing it, then we'll have the people who aren't comfortable with it, just sort of be resistors. And they'll say, oh, well, my patients don't want to do it. And it's like, "Mm, actually, which one doesn't want to do it? So I think we've got to be really cognizant to spend the time and the resource to really have everyone be comfortable with it now. Sam, every time I talk to you about this topic, I'm always enlightened and I have new things to think about. And I really appreciate your insights. You know, people listening in may want to know a little bit more about you and how to connect with you online. What are some ways they can do that? My website, that's samlipolis.com and then forward slash tips. I have a tip sheet that people can download and just directly connect with me through the website. If people are interested in doing consulting, training, any of these kinds of things I've talked about, you can also just book a call directly with me on my website. And then I share all kinds of content across LinkedIn. And so LinkedIn is another great place to connect with me and start to see the different kinds of work that I do with my clients. Well, we'll link to all of that in the show notes. And I strongly encourage people listening in to go out there and download the tip sheets. It's very informative. And check out all the the, the content that Sam is doing. And as I hear it, you're on Clubhouse now too. Is that right? Yeah. So for those of you who, who are in the Clubhouse space, I also do weekly shows on Clubhouse. That's on Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific time. And that's always telehealth with some deeper dive, a uh, particular content area. So I'm on there a lot. I think Clubhouse is an incredible place for you to learn, connect with people in this space. And it's really, again, it's audio like here with podcasts and these live conversations. So I'm really enjoying that platform. Definitely go check you out on Clubhouse too. So that's, that's awesome. Sam, thanks again for your time today. I really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, Chris, it's a pleasure to be back and I just appreciate you having me. So thanks to Sam for coming on the show. Certainly appreciate her insights into um, all things uh, telemedicine. And uh, it, it's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, you know, our care model is just changing, and I'm not sure it goes back exactly the way it was. It's hard to get it all uh, toothpaste back in the tube. So um, these conversations are really important and really interesting. So I appreciate her coming on. If you have not already, go to the website, touchpoint.health, sign up for the TPS report. We'd love to have you as a subscriber. We promise we don't spam or ask you to do anything. It's just a simple email that comes out every Monday morning with five articles to help you start your week. Those articles are aggregated by our show hosts. And, uh, would love to have you, uh, as part of that tribe. So, uh, go do that. Rate, review, subscribe, wherever you happen to be listening. And uh, tell a friend, colleague, coworker, aunt, uncle, just whoever. Um, <laughs> you help us with uh, with those listener numbers is always uh, much, much appreciated. So let's uh, hit a couple of recommendations before we uh, round out the show. What do you have today? Reed, what do you think about when you think of Bend, Oregon? Bend, Oregon. Um, nothing. Well, it just so happens that Bend, Oregon is the home of the very last blockbuster Uh, in the country. And this is related to my recommendation. I actually saw 
the documentary on Netflix called The Last Blockbuster about this location. But it's a little bit more than that. It actually dives into how Blockbuster was a, a prevalent part of many people's childhood growing up. And I don't know about you, but I remember those days when Friday night came around, we went with some friends, we went over to the local Blockbuster, walked through all the different aisles to find that right video cassette of, you know, v- VCR of the the latest one that's there, or maybe even hovering around the, the Dropbox to see if someone returned the most recent movie. Do you remember those times, Reed? Oh, yeah. Sorry, we only have that in beta. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then, of course, you know that the smell of the popcorn, because they always had the Orville Redenbacher popcorn up front. And just, you know, that 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 whole social feeling of going to a video store. We don't have that anymore. Nowadays, we can stream anything that we want anywhere at any time to any device. But back then, it was just like this whole cultural thing. And this documentary really dives into that and then follows the story of the very last blockbuster that is still operating. They even brought it up to speed how it actually stayed open during COVID. And it's a small family-run business. And they even have to go back to now Dish Network owns the name of Blockbuster. They have to keep going back every year to renew the t- <laughs> the name of their store. It's just a fascinating, great, great um, documentary. It's not too long, and it's just a lot of fun to watch. It brings back so much memory. That's my recommendation. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to that one. Um, I'm also going to recommend a show. I'm going to recommend a comedian. This guy is absolutely hysterical. Nate Bergazzi. His new Netflix special is out. It's called The Greatest Average American. And man, he is funny. And he even mentions Blockbuster. So there's that. There's a tie-in. I love it. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole it's a whole shtick about Chuck E. Cheese. And um, anyway, I won't I won't spoil it, but it is <laughs> absolutely hysterical. Nate Bergazzi, it's on Netflix. It's called The Greatest Average American. Uh, he has an older uh, special on Netflix that is also absolutely hysterical called The Tennessee Kid. So check out either one of those, but his new one, he, it's got some really funny kind of stories and commentary in there. So really, really funny guy and uh, completely clean. Uh, so you can watch it with family and stuff like that. He's just, uh, he's really funny and kind of a dry sense of humor and kind of plays up the just average American bit. That is my my recommendation. Looks like two new uh, movies to add to your Netflix queue this week. All right, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for rating, reviewing, subscribing, emailing, tweeting, and uh, LinkedIn-ing. LinkedIn-ing. Is that a thing? Anyway, we certainly appreciate the support and all the uh, energy and uh, support you've given us over the years. So uh, this is the end of episode 216, not the end of the show, just the end of episode 216. I liked my dramatic pause there. (laughs) For Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we will see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.